0: Greg Johnson. Welcome to Countercurrents Radio. We are doing a special double live stream today. The first hour will be about the new Denis Villeneuve uh, adaptation of Frank Herbert's classic sci fi novel Dune, which is in theaters now. And the second hour will be on David Lean's classic film from 1957, Bridge on the River Kwai. And I'm going to be discussing both of these works with Morgoth. Morgoth, welcome back. Hello again, there, Greg. Thanks for having us on. Yeah, it's, it's been a while. Uh, I always follow your work, though. And you and I have a lot of common interests in, in movies as well as politics and meta-politics and so forth. So it was about time to get you back on here. And I know you're a Dune fan. And so I was uh, thinking this would be the perfect opportunity to uh, to get together again. And I also note that you're a David Lean fan, and I'm a big David Lean fan too. So I thought we would talk about uh, him, especially Bridge on the River Kwai, in the second in the second hour. So, folks, if you would like to send your questions and comments to us, there are two ways of doing that while sweetening the pot with a little donation. One is to go to entropystream.live forward slash countercurrents. That's across the bottom of the screen. And you can uh, leave a donation there. We're not using uh, Entropy right now for streaming, so it says we're offline. But that just means that we're not streaming there. You can still leave a paid chat. Just hit the green button, and you can leave uh, $3 and up. And if you want to do it on film stuff, especially related to the topics at hand, that would be great. But honestly, if you have questions and comments uh, about current events and other things, we're happy to look at those and we're very grateful. The other thing you can do is send your DLive tokens, your diamonds, lemons, ice cream, genies, ninjets, and so forth. I, I just checked and we've received more than $1,000 towards our annual fundraiser in DLive tokens uh, this year. That's great. These things really add up. So, uh, we are trying to raise $200,000 this year to keep us going and go, you know, be better, uh, not just uh, stay on the air, uh, stay on the web, but actually do better. So, you've already gotten us one 200th of the way there just with your DLive tokens. Uh, we really appreciate that. So, I'm just going to ask you, Morgoth, uh, what did you think of this new Dune movie? Um, it's, it's, it's a bit of a mixed bag.
1: I thought i i i have gave it a couple of, I've watched it one and a half times. I was actually just watching it again, um, just brushing it off when, um, when, we, before the live stream there. And I feel that he, he, he really gave it his best. Um, and it, I mean, there's a the diversity which chaffed a bit. I knew the Fremen would come in for a particular battering. As soon, as soon as I heard there was a new June movie on the way, I thought, and they'll go for the Fremen. The Fremen will be like Arabs or something like that. that's where the diversity quota will hit hardest, and it did. Um, and I thought the one that was and so I kind of I wasn't surprised by that. The Kynes um, becoming a black woman was was particularly great, and but um, beyond that, I mean, I, 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 it, it was visually uh, brilliant. And I, I, there's not it's it's kind of strange because I, I I've. I do think that he made one hell of an effort, but there seems to be something lacking in it. Um, and it, it's it's kind of sad. I it, it almost feel guilty if I just start dumping on it as well. As far as Paul Atreides con- is concerned, I, here again, I've got a little bit of sympathy because that must be a nightmare of a character to cast um, and, and kind of flesh out in a movie because he you've got to walk a fine line between essentially a young boy who's about to become a messiah but you don't want him to be some stroppy kind of pain in the arse basically just so someone who who's always huffy and throwing a fit but at the same time he can't be he is naive so it's it's a very difficult character so but it, all in all i'm kind of sympathetic to what he kind of had to go at because in, in today's Hollywood, it's sad, but we have to accept that you are going to get hit with the diversity. And so we think, okay, well, well where's it going to hit? I mean, we can talk about that a bit more later.
0: Mm-hmm. But
1: as as for the actual, the, some of the themes and some of the um, way he was going with it, especially when you contrast it with David Lynch's version, the, the, I mean, I noticed that the, the inner monologue, which is big in the book and David Lynch seems to have had a whale of a time with the, the inner monologue, which is a thing in June, that was almost scrapped entirely. And I think it's, it's it's Hollywood sort of drives towards some kind of conformity. I don't know. You you do get that feeling that the, the director wanted to go certain places, but there was like, you know, the CEOs and the board watching over his neck uh, all of the time. I mean, there was one part when they, when they actually arrived on June, and they they were playing the bagpipes, and I just thought it was so ridiculous. But I kind of liked that. I thought, well, I was like, they've got these big bagpipe parades as they're stepping of a desert planet in an alien world, and I thought this these are the quirky little things that that I like. These are the little things that make it seem different, you know.
0: Yeah, I I, I liked that little touch too. Uh, I, I my feeling was that the bagpipes uh, was uh, sort of an homage to the original source material because the original source material of Dune is is very much inspired by T. E. Lawrence and Lawrence of Arabia. It sort of the, provides the setting, uh, the the mental landscape and uh, the Imperium and its nobility and so forth. I think are being modeled on the british empire in some way uh in this movie and i thought that uh it was it was also uh done that way w- with david lynch especially the way he portrayed the atreides their uniforms and their styles they're carrying around little pug dogs and things like that it had really an anglo aristocratic anglo imperial feel to it
1: yeah yeah it did I mean, one of the things I, I was I was interested in was I mean, one of the things that I I was disappointed with was that when in, so in the first part of the movie, there were, I didn't think he did the you have to build up there has to be a sense of foreboding about June itself and what what June actually is that it, it isn't it isn't just a dangerous planet and it isn't just a sort of center of like the space which is really important for the elites and more than the the kind of common folk who are just stuck on their planets and i wanted to have more of this feeling that you are going in there the first thing is that like on um on alien the little trick where you never show your bad guy i think they showed june like just too early they, 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 they kind of demystified it too early and it should have been kept on the back burner so that when you actually arrive there it's like whoa we, we're we actually here um so you kind of hold that off and then it sort of build it up through again like the inner monologues and Paul studying the the lore and the mysticism and I, th- I thought they, they that didn't happen nearly as much as what I liked so when they actually arrived there besides the bagpipes and you did get the feeling like they were going on holiday to Dubai or somewhere. it, <laughs> it, it was like, yeah, there has to be something built. up. this is an awe-inspiring planet, um, and it's a very dangerous place. And it's steeped in religion and superstition and politics and intrigue. It's a, it's a very, you just a place that's better off avoided. And I thought that could have been done a bit better.
0: Yeah, I think that. Frank Herbert is a reactionary genius. I I think he is one of the most reactionary novelists of the 20th century. I think the backstory uh, of Dune, the universe of Dune, uh, is a a complete repudiation of liberal democracy and progressivism. Uh, And I think that's wonderful. Uh, Frank Herbert's uh, 100th birthday was uh, last year. And unfortunately, we we missed doing a big celebration of it. Uh, something else just came up, and I just couldn't, I couldn't grind out the article I wanted to write about it. But, and I, I wanted to read uh, a bunch of his other novels. I've only read his Dune materials, the six Dune books, and some unpublished things connected with them. But anyway, he, at least within the Dune uh, universe, uh, he's a reactionary thinker. Uh, he believed that uh, liberal democracy was not a form of society that could go out and colonize the universe. Uh, He believed that it would be something akin to feudalism because of the great distances and vast spans of time required to go from star to star. You'd need a a maximally decentralized uh, form of government, but at the center, you would also need the ability to plan for thousands of years ahead and the long time horizons uh, required for that are just not something that you can get with liberal democracy and so he looked back at the middle ages he looked at uh, dynasties that would plan for you know th- their posterity he looked at initiatic orders like uh, things like the churches or sufi orders uh, as models for uh, or guilds as models of institutions that replicate themselves over thousands of years by initiating people into a doctrine and plan for thousands of years into the future. Uh, he he believed that long-range planning was absolutely essential for the future of mankind, especially if we're going to go out into the into the cosmos. And that's just not something that liberal democracy can do. Uh, so he gives an uh, image of a. Uh, intensely hierarchical, non-individualistic society uh, ruled by this warrior aristocracy uh, alongside these various mystic initiatic orders. And those are the Bene Gesserit, uh, the Spacing Guild, and a group called the Bene Tlylax, who turn out to be uh, basically uh, secret Sufis, uh, which I think is fascinating. So this is Great stuff for reactionaries, uh, and it's an objectively reactionary work of the imagination. Uh, Herbert also rejected uh, equality between the sexes. In in the fourth Dune novel, there's a lot of talk in there about uh, human biological diversity, the psychological differences between men and women, and how these have to be taken into account. in the extreme backstory of Dune, uh, he rejects artificial intelligence. He projects a world where there was a holy war to destroy thinking machines and that mankind has evolved technologically, but we have basically gotten rid of computers and do do all the math in our heads, so to speak. And we've had to expand our heads. Uh, and one of the things that expands the head is this, uh, thing called spice which is found on one planet dune and when you have a a civilization that's all about long-term planning and you have a substance that can extend your lifespan and also make you prescient so you can glimpse the future that would be the ultimate value in a in a civilization like that so I, i think it's fascinating it's it's important that this work be made and popularized and stay in print uh, uh, yeah. because it's an objectively anti-liberal, <clears throat> anti-modernist uh, uh, work. Uh, it's a it's a reactionary work. And so we want these reactionary ideas to circulate. And so that's what makes me excited that this movie happened. But the movie itself, ah, well, it's only part one. First of all, uh, there are going to be two parts to it. It only tells the first half of the novel. And I I left, uh, I watched it once in a pirated version, and then I watched it again in a theater on the big screen. And I was sort of feeling the vibe of the theater, and I thought that people were getting kind of antsy, uh, and uh, it, it dragged on a bit long. I, I found it dull to the eyes. Uh, I, I didn't think it was as beautiful as it could have been, uh, I found it grating to the ears. I found Hans uh, Hans Zimmer's uh, electronic noise scores to be oppressive and tuneless. And I found it kind of uh, uh, basically a drag on my attention span after a while. I thought a lot of stuff was just being dragged out. Uh, and uh, th- he was trying to milk it for some significance that it was uh, not reaching, I thought. Yeah, so, yeah.
1: There was there was there was one standout scene that I just watched before, which I really did like, and it's this the when when they <clears throat> when they go out and they arrive at the the mining. It's early on and like halfway through, and and they they it's a famous scene where it's the first time a worm appears, mm-hmm. and um, Lito and Paul and and the the men, and and now with Keynes, it's the woman as well. And so they they go out um, to have a sort of check, check up on the spice mining operation. And there's a worm coming in the distance. They're all kind of watching, sort of like tourists or something. Um, It's because they've never seen how all of this works, how how the production of the spice works and all of this. And there was a scene, uh, the way they did it in the new movie was where Paul went down to try and help out. And you had this for once. It wasn't that like overly noisy, bombastic Hans Zimmer kind of music. It was just like a simple uh, choir voice, just like a female uh, uh, choir voice. And, And then at the same time, you got this scene of Paul kind of being sort of showered in space for the first time. And then at the same time, you can see that the worm is plowing its way and it's coming towards them. And it was a very, I thought it was just very well done. And I thought this, this is the stuff. This is what I like because you get that sense of wonder. You know, you've got your your main uh, sort of hero and his his uh, sort of hero's journey is just about to start. He's being showered in the space which has got significance, and him and his family have shown their humanity. And at the same time, you've got the worm which is about to come, and they're trying to. There's one of the the sort of locks. Where they're trying to lift the the mining vehicle off the sand, and it, it's not quite working. It so you it's it, there's so much going on at the same time, and and yet the music and the tone was just right. I thought this is this is great stuff. I I really I really like this. I
0: thought that was a very effective sequence too. Uh, I I agree with that. Uh, they they sort of created a, an opportunity to have Paul begin his visions or start having visions there. Uh, it's not in the in the original, uh, but I thought it was it was well done, and I do think that the music and the suspense uh, were were quite good. Uh,
1: it was almost like that moment in The Dark Knight when the Joker sticks his head out the side of the car, and you get that kind of weird, all silent all hell is breaking loose, but at the same time you've got a very calm kind of uh, soundtrack in, and it it's, it reminded me of that for some reason.
0: Yeah, that's, that, that is a very memorable little shot, yeah. And the drama of just cutting away and just having sort of uh, light-sounding strings in the background, uh, I, I thought was, was, was interesting, yeah. Uh, so this book, The Dune, was published in 1965. It sold millions of copies the first attempt at adapting it to the screen was Alejandro Jodorowsky's project, which just didn't get off the ground. But when it fell apart, the creative team went off in various directions and, and got involved in things like creating alien first. Uh, and it certainly had a huge amount of influence on other movies like that, uh, that started happening in the late seventies and the eighties. A lot of the design was just stolen basically and adapted. Uh, and then, um, the first actual adaptation of it for the screen was 1984 by David Lynch. Uh, then around, I think it was 2001, the Sci-Fi Channel did a uh, miniseries adaptation. I think it was in three parts uh, of, of the whole novel. And now this, uh, almost 20 years later. And have you seen the, the Lynch and the Sci-Fi Channel versions?
1: yeah i can i did find the sci-fi channel one kind of forgettable i have a lynch one i've seen many times the the i, I rem, i've watched them but I, I i find it difficult to remember much about the the series to be honest there was actually quite a few i think they they did like um june messiah and they 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 did quite a bit they in TV like in 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 that format of say eight yeah. episodes or something they did they converted quite a few of his books well, well they, they did
0: time. the next two books they did children of dune and um uh, they did dune um, dune messiah which was the second and children of dune the third uh as a three-part miniseries just called children of dune uh i thought that was absolutely excellent uh, i thought the first miniseries of dune itself was you know, kind of a snoozer uh it was badly cast it was just had weird uh decisions about design and the script and stuff like that. And the special effects were really kind of weak. Uh, The other series had weak special effects because it was sort of cheesy. It was 2003, it was the Sci-Fi Channel. Uh, The special effects were cheesy, but the script and the cast, they had a very, uh, they changed a lot of the cast. The music was excellent. It It was actually a really brilliant adaptation. Uh, In some ways, the best adaptation of any of the Dune works. But my favorite of the three adaptations of Dune has to be the David Lynch. Uh, I was hoping that this would uh, exceed the Lynch, uh, and I thought that it fell short. Now, Lynch's Dune is flawed. There's no question about it. Uh, But in every scene where you can compare it to the Villeneuve Dune, uh, and a lot, a lot of, c- c- you know, compelling canonical important scenes like the test with the the box, uh, the and near the beginning, or the visit to the desert uh, with the spice mining, uh, meeting Doctor Kynes and all of that. Uh, I I thought that in the or the 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 weapons training with Gurney Halleck. Uh, I thought that where you can compare them very closely, that. Lynch's uh, movie is is just more artful, uh, yeah. in my opinion. It's and more visually striking too.
1: I mean, um, um, if you look at... Because I think there's parts of it really play to David Lynch's strengths as well, which is um, the dream sequences, for example. It's Absolutely. Right, so so there, there's and the, the inner monologue. And then there's the, like, Brian Eno music with the sort of mysticism of the desert and things. So there's a lot of this, which David Lynch is very comfortable with and, like, is, really likes getting into that kind of thing. So in a way, it, you know... People kind of think, well, what a weird movie for David Lynch to direct. I actually, it its not its isn't. It is it it isn't really that far off the beaten track for for a David Lynch movie at all. Actually, um, I mean, one of the things that that I was going to bring up just for the sort of in the conversation was related to this, and it's that because David Lynch does have his own, you know, he 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 is like sort of obsessed with dreams and this kind of thing, but when you so when i was saying there's something missing in it and you wonder if it's possible for like just a liberal a standard liberal director to be comfortable with some of the themes in June because it is reactionary and and it, it isn't just a purely materialist action movie and I've, i was wondering like what what you thought of that where you, you, the director can be technically skilled And he can know what he's doing, and with especially these days, they've all got to be computer wizards. Um, unlike say David Lean, who would like spend hours and hours on top of a cliff waiting for the perfect sunset or whatever. These days, it's all about programming on the computer, so they can do all that very well. But they do have to. All they really have to fall back on is like a liberal materialism, and it seems that if for something like June. If you've got a different worldview, if you're outside of that, you can probably do something with it. And so you get this impression where he's he's kind of trying with all of his might, with everything that is disposal, and it's it's a like he just can't quite make it because he is at the end just a liberal.
0: Well, yeah, you're talking about the new movie. Yeah, yeah, I, I I agree with that. I David Lynch is, I think, uh, a case can be made that he's a reactionary in his aesthetics and his deep worldview and also a mystic. There's something mystical about Lynch's, uh, sensibility. And I think he took to Dune. and he saw the elements in Dune, uh, that we like, and he was very, very effective at communicating those. Now I think Bill Nevis is, is not that way. And I think that he well, how, how, how to put it? I do think that he managed to capture, in some sense, the, the flavor of the sort of mystery of the Imperium. Uh, the the Benny Gesserit appear in this just briefly in a couple of scenes, and he manages to, I think, sort of at least hint at something yes. uh, about them that's more than ordinary.
1: Yes, with a, Charlotte rambling helps as well. <laughs> but, yeah, she's um, got a wonderful voice. She's she's brilliant. So yeah, I, I thought the Benny Gesserit were good in this. Yeah,
0: yeah, uh, but at the same time, he he decided to be more faithful to the book than uh, Lynch, and so he he does a two and a half hour movie and only gets halfway through the story. Well, why did uh, Lynch get get through the entire book in two hours and twenty five minutes or something? Well, uh, because he cut a lot of stuff that wasn't very necessary. Uh, there, there are a lot of basically chases and things like that, chases and escapes, running from one place to another uh, in in this film that Lynch just eliminated because he wanted to. He he didn't have time for it, and he, I think he probably thought, well, this just smacks of pulp science fiction, uh, you know, running from one, uh, you know, danger to another, one adventure to another. Oh, you forgot something. You got to go back. Oh, this and that. Uh, th- these were sort of like pulp magazine things, uh, narrow escapes and meeting up with people by accident and so forth. He just cut all that and he focused more on the broader story and the characterization and the, the message of it. And I, I thought that was a valid approach. A totally valid approach, actually. I think another thing
1: for the the new one is that the the people involved in it would be very conscious of the if if you go on Google Images because I've I've raided Google Images June art for videos and things like that, and you really do or deviant art and these kinds of places, and people will just love it. People get really carried away. Yeah. Um, there's some fantastic artwork up there, just of the, the the June the June universe, all different kinds and styles as well, and I, I, you do kind of get the impression that the people designing it had that in mind and thought we we can't we we, we have to kind of either top what they they are doing, just normies like, doing graphic design on the internet or whatever it happens to be. Like they were conscious that the subculture was there. And I think Lynch wouldn't have had that kind of pressure. I don't think Lynch would have cared that much anyway, to be honest. But um, I think because June is, is more of a cultural thing now. Uh, or a slightly different way that, than w- what it was would have been when David Lynch made it because now you have all of the fan art and you've got websites and wiki forums and all of this kind of thing.
0: Yeah, I, I think Dune's uh, the, the, the art design in Lynch's Dune is, is really striking. I, I like his sets. Uh, I think the uniforms are pretty good. Uh, there's some silly things, uh, like the weirding modules, uh, and that was pressed upon him basically by De Laurentiis. Uh, they wanted it to be sort of Star Wars-y, so they wanted some weird weapon. Uh, whereas, uh, one of the things that's also very reactionary about, uh, the Dune universe, uh, is, is, is that Herbert likes to show how, uh, technology can cancel itself out and return us to more archaic forms of life, like feudalism, for instance, or in his case, uh, forms of combat. So he has this idea that the laser uh, was invented, of course, uh, but people came up with a way of shielding against it. And unfortunately, when a shield and a laser interact, it creates an explosion that kills all parties. It's just too terrible to contemplate using lasers. Uh, And shields can also protect you against projectile weapons like bullets, Uh, but it can't protect you uh, from the slow blade. And so uh, in this, uh, because of the extreme advance of weapons technology and also defensive technology, we've returned to a world where uh, you uh, fight with edged weapons. Which, of course, is not a sci-fi thing. It's a fantasy novel thing. It's it's a it's there's sorcery and swords in the dude universe. Uh, it's really actually an interesting fusion of sci-fi futurism and fantasy literature archaism. And this is why I, I call it archaeofuturist futurist in, in you know uh, following Guillaume Fi's idea of ar- archaeofuturism. futurism.
1: Yes, and the wonderful thing is, and this is why it it is uh, so reactionary, is that we we the the age of technology. The start June, it looks like say on the Star Trek universe. The Star Trek universe is in the distant past. So the the way we live now, the sort of liberal progressive mentality, is that there's just going to be this constant sort of improvement and technology will get better and technology will do more and more of the work and it just goes on and on and on and on and on until i mean it, it, to be honest this is what terrifies me about so much of the real world now is that you end up just being like a sort of augmented uh pog denis pod denizen you know with your 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 maggotburg or whatever but mm-hmm. that's kind of where it leads when we can see this beginning to emerge now but they don't see it that way they basically Technology is going to get better, and the material conditions of life will be uh, improving. And what you tend to see, as well as definitely in June, but other more reactionary stuff, Warhammer as well, is that this this sort of progressive liberal age is now in the ancient past. And this this is why you, they makes them uncomfortable because the 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 future belongs to us in a way mm-hmm.
0: because
1: because the more primal perennial um, forms come back, and you can't get away from it. I was doing a, a, a live stream with um, Distributist and a few others at the beginning of the year. I think we were talking about June and Warhammer, and we were discussing the possibility of like what would it be like to create our own kind of world uh, where you could do this. And um, Distributist came up with the idea that if you are going to do a right-wing uh, sort of – if you're going to make a fictional right-wing universe, science fiction universe – you have to bake into the cake a cyclical view of history because then the liberals can never get the upper hand because yeah. it will always end. It doesn't matter how politically powerful they are. It doesn't matter how much money they've got and all of this. It will end. It's inevitable. And the, the, when you look at the entire circle, their kind of victory is actually just a blip. In the long, it's sort of. Their
0: victory is a prelude to their downfall, basically. Yeah. Um, Yeah. This is why so many uh, of us on the right are attracted to cyclical views of history, uh, because it does fundamentally contradict the progress narrative. And there are people who look to traditionalism, uh, and then there are people who look to more Epicurean views of cyclical history. uh, And the two best examples of that, I think, are Vico and Spengler. Uh, but yeah, either, either approach, whether it's the more mystical view or a, a kind of quasi-materialist view, uh, leads to the same thing. It leads to the conclusion that liberalism is not the end of history. It's actually just a, a, a form of social decay uh, that generally you find at the, at the end of a historical cycle uh, yeah. and that it will give way to something very different and much more primal. Yeah, it's Much so more it's, archaic.
1: So it, it's something like Dune is almost like, if you handed sort of a script for to Julius and say, like construct a sci-fi novel, it would probably be something like Dune.
0: Absolutely. Well, in a way, if you look at the backstory of Dune, uh, what, uh, according to uh, Herbert, you know, it was the Star Trek future for a while. Uh, it was high-tech. Uh, and they created artificial intelligences, and artificial intelligences uh, became oppressive, and mankind uh, basically uh, had a religious awakening and asserted itself against these dehumanizing, leveling machines, and uh, there was a a holy war, the Butlerian Jihad, to expunge thinking machines from the universe. That, you know, nine 9000, You know, no Google algorithms, uh, nothing like that. Some people, uh, you know, have talked about how, you know, uh, a a lot of sci-fi is really quaint because they don't anticipate things that we have today like cell phones or the internet. And people can look back and say, well, isn't it quaint that um, Frank Herbert envisioned uh, a far future society where, uh, you would have scarce information, where people could keep secrets, where planets were far apart and cut off from one another, where you would you you couldn't get information about the planet that your family was actually going to take control over, right? You know, it's one of the things uh, about the the novel that uh, information about Dune is scarce. The very idea of scarce information, uh, I think, is something that he liked. He, he wanted to go to a world of information scarcity where you could keep secrets, where you didn't have thinking machines. Uh, of course, he didn't anticipate the Internet, but if somebody had told him about it, he would have said, oh, that's that's bad. We should get rid of it. Uh, and the butlerian jihad would have wiped it out. So, yeah, yeah he he projected that uh, that Star Trek future and then projected its downfall and projected the emergence of the Imperium. As a form of archaic society that's more human, basically,
1: it's it's. I think for for people like in in our circles, it's also intellectually liberating when you can you can see the Star Trek universe, and it's it's actually thirty thousand years in the past of, yeah. of of it's it's ancient history. It's long gone, but what you find is that there is a certain um, certain mysticism and hierarchy and aristocracy these the, because because they've had basically they've had to survive they've they've had to go through one hell of the hard time of it because of the war with the machines because they almost got wiped out and what you find is that as soon as real hardship hits um right-wing values come back genuine traditional reactionary values right-wing values they come back with one hell of a bang. In the same way that if the internet and the electric grid went down for six months in the Western world, it would all be, um, it would all like nobody would be a left winger by the end of it. Everybody would be right wing.
0: Yeah, yeah. Uh, one of the things that's incredibly reactionary about this is eugenics. Eugenics is absolutely central to the Dune universe. Uh, the Bene Gesserit, uh, which uh, the the very name of which can be uh, you know, glossed as well-born. Uh, the Benny Gesserit is this, a female initiatic order that is dedicated to manipulating the bloodlines of uh, basically the best genetic stock uh, in the Imperium. Uh, many of whom, of course, are aristocrats, and trying to produce a human being who has the power to. Basically, remember uh, ancestral memories and also see the future. Uh, and th- that's, that's remarkable. So uh, once, once you get rid of technology, especially technology that thinks for us, then what you have to do is you have to, you, you, you have to find human beings who can do, it, do those things. And the number of human beings who can calculate square roots in their head and things like that is tiny right? And uh, that means that destroying thinking machines is inegalitarian. Uh, you have to go for people with natural gifts, and then you have to work on uh, augmenting those natural gifts, uh, uh, mnemonics and uh, other kinds of techniques using the spice. But one way of, uh, of doing that is to improve the stock. And they have been improving the human stock for thousands of years. Uh, this is absolutely horrifying <laughs> to the modern liberal mentality, uh, but I, I find it, you know, quite welcome. Yes, eugenics is a great thing. We should mm-hmm. want the next generation to be more gifted than us. What well, how did you um, just on the the, the sort of the, the the
1: June TV series that came out twenty years ago? It just popped into my mind. One of the read my mind one of the reasons why I, I wasn't a fan of that was because of baron Harkonnen, because he was just a fat english sort of thespian actor waddling around and of course in the david lynch um it was typical of david lynch there was a, like baron Harkonnen was absolutely grotesque in it and what did you make of stellan Star- skarsgård as it's in this one um so no. far, i've got a feeling we're going to see a lot more of him in the second movie
0: well, I hope so. Uh, I think that Lynch's uh, Baron Harkonnen is totally over the top. Uh, he's the most disgusting villain in all of film. Uh, you know, just sort of oozing pustules and sexually perverted, and fat, and uh, insane, and sadistic. He's he's really one of the most disgusting villains in all of uh, film. Uh, I I think he's wonderfully over the top uh but i love him uh i i did think um what was it ian mcneese i think the actor who played yeah. in, in yeah, the yeah. sci-fi thing yeah. i mean he has a great voice he's got a great voice but he's just yeah he's just a big fat gay uh thespian you know british thespian mm-hmm. um and uh, uh so i didn't find him uh all that threatening but the scars guard one i mean i which It was just sort of nothing to me. I thought, well, this is sort of uh, Marlon Brando in um, Apocalypse <laughs> uh, now. Apocalypse Now, as yeah. uh, mumbling his way through Baron Harkonnen. and he doesn't have that many lines. It's not clear what his uh, motives are. Uh, I just I just found him disappointing.
1: Uh, I, I, I was, cause it's been a long time since I read the book, but from what I remember, Baron Harkonnen had a lot more to say in the book than what he has in the, in the, this movie. He's, absolutely. Yeah. He, 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 he talks quite a lot. Yeah. He, he talks
0: he, quite a lot and he's highly articulate. At least the McNeese uh, one is sort of uh highly uh, articulate uh, and has beautiful, a beautiful accent and a beautiful voice. Um, he, he, that that aspect of him comes across. Uh, you know, he's a he's an inveterate schemer, uh, and he's incredibly clever, and yet he's amazingly limited because he's essentially a merchant, and uh, he's a merchant prince who's uh, basically squeezing uh, resources out of uh, the colonies, and he has managed to overlook the entire dimension of, well. Uh, the The military potential of Arrakis and the Fremen there. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was completely oblivious to that, and uh, the Emperor uh, when uh, was was quite skeptical that he could be so oblivious <laughs> to the military potential of these people. But uh, that that was his limitation. He was basically just a merchant prince, but an amazingly uh, com- you know ma- amazingly subtle minded Byzantine schemer. Uh, and yeah, you don't get any sense of that. You don't get a sense of this. His subtlety, um, he has a certain wit. Uh, none of that. Uh, yeah. So yeah, yeah, I thought that was um, disappointing.
1: It, it, it was almost as if it really was. It really was Marlon Brando. I don't know. Is it official that he he modeled his role on that? Because I I think if you looked it up and you looked for an interview, you may well see that. Yeah, it's Stellan Skarsgård said he modeled. The role on on Brando in Apocalypse Now.
0: Well, whether he he admits it or not, it's obvious uh, that's what he's doing. <laughs> he's just doing Apocalypse Now, Marlon Brando. You, Colonel you've, even,
1: you've, you've even got like the sort of the big pudgy um hand going over the bald head, kind of rubbing, yeah, the, it, with know, all mopping sweat the sweat. It yeah. It, it, yeah. It really, it really was that? Yeah, I thought that. I think that was in the back of my mind when I was watching it, but it was as if the um, the director. Whose French name I find impossible to say is—is is, um. It was as if he thought, well, there's this big fat man, and he's just not very nice, and then that's it. But as you say, it, that's not actually Baron Harcourt, and he's actually got—he talks a lot, and he's got a sharp mind. But he's yeah, also—he's he, also a bit of a lackey to the emperor.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, the, his complexity, uh, is, is gone and his, uh, at, at least the, the Lynch character is entertainingly demonic, uh, and that's gone too. Uh, and so he's just sort of this fat, nasty guy, uh, you know, what, what motivates him? Well, it's just not clear. Uh, generally speaking, there, there's very little, I think, characterization uh, and character development that, that happens in this film. Uh, Timothy Chalamet, of course, has that, uh, there, there's some stuff with his father that I thought was effective at showing their relationship. Uh, I thought that was, that was good. There's a certain warmth there. I thought the Lynch movie also showed the warmth of the relationship between father and son. Uh, I thought both movies, both Lynch and Villeneuve, uh, were successful in casting people who actually looked like they could be related. Uh, Timothy Chalamet looks like he could be the son of Oscar Isaac and Rebecca Ferguson. <laughs> he he looks like yeah. a cross between the two. And uh, I thought Mikhail McLaughlin looked like he could be the son of Jürgen Prochnow and Francesca Annis. I thought uh, that that was that was a nice touch, and it was indicative of, of some sense of the. You know that that genes play a huge role in this in this universe. Mm-hmm.
1: I did I did like Jessica. I thought Jessica was done quite well. I, I, she because she did she does have that sort of English Aris, English rose type uh, look yeah. to it. And yeah. when there's there's one scene with her which is very good when she's sitting in the in a sort of little cave thing with all alien world well, sort of scribbles script. Written all across the back of the wall, and it's going across her face as well. So you you get this you get this sense that she is this well to do aristocratic lady, but here she is being reduced like to this, where she is just a sort of the the fremen. She's just like a sort of Bedouin woman sitting in a in a little cave somewhere with scr- like religious text written across her face. And I, I thought that was very well done. I, I quite enjoyed her throughout this.
0: Yeah, I, I thought she was a, a strong uh, character, a strongly well-done uh, well, a well done role. Uh, generally, though, if you compare the casting and performances of all the major roles uh, in The Dune and The Villeneuve, I don't think that Villeneuve's uh, movie exceeds a, uh, Lynch's movie in any way. I don't think anyone's uh, stands out as, a, uh, as remarkably stronger uh, than uh, the, the version in the Lynch film. And, and then, of course, there are the weaknesses. Uh, the, the big thing that annoyed me uh, is, of course, the diversity casting. Now, it's absolutely true that Herbert is massively Eurocentric. There's no question about it. Uh, the Imperium and a civilization is modeled on European civilization. Uh, and the Fremen, uh, who are a people on the margins of the imperium, are modeled after the Arabs. And so it's, it, you know, it's Eurocentric, and then there are the exotic people on the margins of Europe, namely the, the, the Near Easterners. Uh, none of these people are portrayed in his book as uh, non-Caucasian. Uh, some of them are non-European, but none of them are non-Caucasian. The 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 Fremen have a legend that they are descended from e- from the people of Egypt, so you know the people of the the desert, basically, uh, you know, not just you know the Copts and uh, Arabs and people uh, there. So that I think um, you know puts them in the Caucasoid camp, definitely. Uh, in this uh, version. Uh, We get sub-Saharan Africans uh, everywhere. Uh, And my fear, uh, based on the first trailer, uh, was that this was going to be uh, a woke morality play. Uh, There's an element of anti-colonialism in the the original Dune novel. There's no question about it. Uh, And... I thought that this was going to be turned into a racial anti-colonialist kind of thing where basically the good guys, the Atreides, consists of uh, whites who race mix with non-whites and non-whites. Basically, they all look like uh, Antifa, right? (laughs) And uh, the bad guys, the Harkonnens, were portrayed as pasty white and bald-headed. They all look like you know, you know, they were redheads in 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 Lynch. Now they just look like skinheads in this. And so I thought this is the Antifa script, and I'm really tired of this bullshit. Uh, the The story is objectively reactionary, and the only thing that they can do is just mess with the casting. And so they they stuck some black people in it, and some mulattoes and so forth. Uh, but I I was pleased when I actually saw the film that they didn't do this consistently so you could have a a sort of uber-white versus non-white and white race traitor (laughs) uh, conflict because some of the bad guys are are non-white as well. So, for instance, at the very beginning, he invents this scene where the uh, herald of the change, and witnesses come to uh, Caledon uh, for a ceremony passing control of Arrakis to the Atreides. And this is just invented. This isn't in the novel. Uh, it's sort of like uh, the, the audience scene with the Guild Navigator that Lynch invents in his movie. It, it's, it's great because it gives you a, a sense of the grandeur of the Imperium. Right. Mm-hmm. The hierarchy of it and all uh, this is very brief. And frankly, uh, the primary purpose of it seems to be to put a very dark and shiny black man, uh, you know, at the center of this whole delegation. Uh, and of course, that puts him on the bad side. Then, of course, the trader Dr. Yue, who's not described has a Chinese name, but isn't described as Asiatic by uh, Herbert. He is played by an Asian guy. Okay, uh, then we uh, get to the Fremen, and the Fremen are filled with uh, non-whites. Uh, but then at the end of the movie, uh, Paul has to fight this Fremen named Jameis, who's a, a Negro. Uh, he's an uppity Negro uh, who is irrational and picks a fight with this white guy who doesn't want to fight with him, and the white guy doesn't want it doesn't want it to escalate and tries to stop it, and and uh, finally. He has to kill the bastard. He simply has to kill him. And I thought, okay, this is not necessarily, uh, <laughs> you know, an anti-white lesson to stick this in at the end, right? Uh, he, he's he's a bad guy, and he's a particularly uh, familiar black archetype uh, that we we've grown very very weary of uh, in recent years uh, in the in the UK in the United States. So I, I thought that the that the evil messaging that I feared would be in this it didn't pan out, and I'm I'm sort of pleased with that. And so really what it is, is just farcical. Uh, it's like casting Anne Boleyn as a black woman or Marshall Mannerheim as a black man. Uh, you, you know, it, we should look at this and just laugh at the farce of changing the race of characters uh, uh, who are Caucasoid into sub-Saharan Africans who just don't belong.
1: Yeah. I mean I I, I knowing the, the sort of the storyline, I did think they would go full re- critical race theory, um, where the Fremen were, were and they actually were this hodgepodge of, of different non-white non-white people. Um, and that the the main sort of emphasis of the whole film would be that basically these poor downtrodden colored people are forever being oppressed by these white colonizers, which is actually kind of the story. But I was, uh, when there was a back and forth with Duke Lito and he, with, um I forgot his name, at Spanish actor, who's, who's mainly. Javier uh, he, Bardem. Yeah. And it was like, we're not going to grovel to you people. We're not going to be guilted or anything like that. We'll treat you with respect though. Um, you know, we're not going to be tyrants like the Harkonnens, but we're not going to be like these basically shitlib whites who feel sorry for existing and all of this kind of thing. Yeah, but yeah. How, how that actually fully plays out, because this is just half a movie, and we'll have to see because it could still turn um, depending on what happens in the second half. But by and large, as you say with the the the, the fight, They could have taken that out, like they—they, you know—in this day and age, they do have like the 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 white lead, um, and with a black starting a fight with him that he doesn't want to have, and then the black gets killed. You you may think that there'd be some people in the in the, the the office saying or the studio saying, "Look, why don't you put that on? Just leave that out. Just like just don't put that in." That's. That's triggering for some people, but he left it in. Of course, it shouldn't have been a black man in the first place. It shouldn't be just the Arab. I mean, I don't mind it. I think even something like Game of Thrones did this well because you do like in the real world. You do have um, if the fremen are Arabic. I don't mind that if it's supposed to be like if they've got that lineage. And so, in say something like Game of Thrones as well, there are different ethnic groups, even in Westeros. But mm-hmm. if you go to Africa, uh, Daenerys spends like years and years and years wandering around what is basically North Africa, and it's full of sort of half castes, Arabs, um, basically the North African type. And that that's perfectly fine. But what I can't stand is when they ju- like the real killer. Because, because it ties them to a place and, and an identity, and that's that's fine. But what I can't stand is when they randomly pop up, um, you know, so, so it's where it's just a black man here and a white person there, and nobody seems to come from anywhere. That kind of diversity casting is the worst of it all, I think. And this is... Yeah. It, it, funny enough, um, some of these Hollywood directors, they seem to be finding clever ways to get around this, to, to sort of do what they can to lessen the blow. And that's why I knew the Fremen would come in for a particular battering on this one. But um, if they're going to go all the way, I mean, if if you are going to do that, then why not make it interesting. Why not make, if you have to do it, why not make Baron Harkonnen like a gigantic fat Japanese man, like a sumo wrestler or something? Mm-hmm. I mean, there's, there's, there's ways to get around it. In the, Christopher Nolan's good at doing this. So in something like Inception, there's actually more diversity in in Inception than you might think. It's just that it's not offensive and it's cleverly done.
0: Yeah, yeah. They're not just sticking people in there uh, and casting them against type. Uh, I I agree. Really, there there are two kinds of woke casting. One is to tell a good story and then just stick some diverse actors in here and there. Uh, And... That's what they've done here. Basically, there's there's no real message to it. Uh, I feared there would be, but there isn't. They just took a an objectively good story that wasn't written to be envisioned this way, and uh, they blacked up a few people in it. Uh, and if if they hadn't done it, it would be a great movie. I, I think the first Matrix movie is like that. Uh, you can't tell me that if the cast in the first Matrix movie was entirely white and good-looking uh, that that anybody would think it's anything other than a fantastic film, even the most uh, jaded <laughs> rightist. Uh, you know, the second Matrix movie uh, was very different because it actually had plot elements that were basically forms of ritualistic humiliation of white people and men. Uh, it was just Anti-white, anti-male propaganda. It wasn't just a sprinkling of of women and uh, where in male roles or blacks and other non-whites in in, in normatively white roles. Uh, it was it was designed to humiliate, and they couldn't do that with this movie because they'd have to change the storyline. So they just sprinkled in it's uh, these people. It's sort of uh, level one wokeness, uh, and uh, it's so. Equally distributed on both the the good and the bad sides of it, that you can't really turn it into a, a race war narrative. Which uh, I guess in in the current age is about the best you can hope for.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. It is. Yeah. I mean, in the, in the Matrix as well, the the Matrix was much more white than the the sort of so called real world of Zion, which was like ninety percent non-white. And it really was this this like horrible mix of, of sweaty. Sweating on lights, like having raves and and orgies and all of this kind. Yeah, of thing. Yeah, yeah. And, and then the white world was like men in suits and and. Uh, yeah. So there was definitely you can see what they were going for there uh, even back then the the sort of white privilege it's a white system kind of thing.
0: Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And of course, there's going to be a fourth Matrix movie coming out in December. I I will have to go see that and write my review of it. Uh, mm-hmm. I don't actually uh, look forward to it very much, though, to be perfectly frank. Uh, so, yeah, I I think overall uh, we've we've covered this. I I don't think it's better than the Lynch film. Uh, it's more faithful in some ways. I, I think that Denis Villeneuve is turning out to be kind of a disappointing director. When I saw Sicario and I saw Arrival, which are two Movies that he directed, that are rather different movies—one uh, sci-fi and one's a crime uh, type thriller. I thought they were very well done films. I thought they were tight. I thought they were original. I thought they were interesting. And I thought, okay, this guy, this guy could be the, the next Christopher Nolan. You know, it, I was thinking of these movies sort of like Christopher Nolan's early movies, and I thought this could be really, really interesting. Then he did Blade Runner 2049, which I found to be kind of flat and disappointing, uh, to be perfectly honest. And now he's done Dune. And what he has done is is gutsy. He went into uh, established franchise territory. He did a sequel to an absolute sci-fi classic. And then he did a, a new version of something that's been done twice before. And the trouble is when you do that, you give hostage to fortune. You, you invite people to, criti- uh, to compare you to the originals. And when you do that, I don't think he comes up looking all that great. And I'm starting to think that he's not the next Christopher Nolan. He's the next, at well, least the new Zack Snyder, who oh. I thought was very, very promising and then just turned out to be kind of a, a dud uh, who gets uh, a lot of big ticket uh, films to direct anyway.
1: I mean, I, I like Blade Runner, but I do, I, I'm I'm one of these kind of right-wing kind of guys who just like loves the, just sort of basks in all of the aesthetics and the cinematography and things. But what, and it's an interesting thing, because I was saying before that um, <clears throat> it's as if he he's missing the, the spiritual element, as if he cannot quite get his hooks into how to do mysticism. And the funny thing about that is that that's like a main story of the um Runner 2049 is that the 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 android what do you call them again the um replicants, the Replic- replicants they, they are developing souls and a metaphysics and a sense of wonder and poetry about the world and all of this and the humans have entirely lost that and yet when so this is like my question about the liberal director he he is uh, sort of in the role of that kind of materialist, dead soul human. And this is, this is the problem that he's been faced with trying to create June where it is about religion and mysticism and deeper meanings and all of this. And he's, he's come up a blank.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I I think that's really well said. I want to run through uh, entropy and D live and thank a few people. uh, And we'll wrap up this hour. Uh, So uh, over at Entropy, uh, Gadius writes in with 30 US dollars and says, I searched Dune racist in Google and Twitter. And the overwhelming take from leftoids was Dune is a white savior story. Well, that doesn't surprise me. Uh, I mean, they'll pull that out of their ass and <laughs> and run with it. Uh, so uh, yeah, that's fine. That's good. I, I hope they don't go see it. Uh, it would be wasted on them anyway. What are your thoughts about that? Well it's
1: kind of predictable it's it shows you how shallow they are because they don't even all they can really see is like the 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 sort of the petty point scoring of the racial kind of thing and and not that the world itself refutes the whole worldview like the the right. whole basis of how june is constructed but well, that went over their their heads i mean there's a quick little quick little story that I've got uh, that I, I was looking, I've been thinking about doing something on, on this, this grim dark uh, sort of science fiction stuff, which I find so interesting. And I went to a little blog. I, I was looking up some artwork and I went to a blog and it it was, it involved um, Blade Runner 2049 and the, the blog out was just a little blog somewhere. And he was responding to social justice leftists who were complaining that there wasn't strong female characters in Blade Runner 2049, which is just completely ridiculous. The all the the, the movie is just completely dominated with women. Yeah. All of the plot goes around women. There's about six women. There's only that one guy in it with the you know the broken nose, Ah, oh, RK, okay, he's called, isn't it? Ryan Goslin is it? Yeah. And, and but but what he, he responded was was something that I thought was really interesting, and it was that. Like he responded and said, at the end of the day, it is a dystopia. Why do you assume that this dystopian world, like maybe it's a dystopia because your values don't exist within it. And, and I thought that was interesting because they, they can't even construct a dystopia from which from their point of view would be right wing. They would have to say, well, it, it still has to have diversity in it. Our values still have to win out at the end. We can be, mm-hmm. It's it's a it's a funny thing. It, 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 like the, the the whatever depiction of the future, no matter how horrible it is, it has to depict some sort of left wing values, even when it's a dystopia.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. Uh, this is really what uh, Villeneuve deserves, though. Uh, he could have cast it like David Lynch cast it, and basically cast it with entirely white actors. There were a couple of extras, basically, among the, the, the Sardaukar generals. Uh, one was an American Indian looking guy. Another was uh, some kind of light skinned black guy that had like weird, uh, like metallic noses and patches on their heads, uh, like they were on their way to becoming the Tin Woodman. That was, and they had no lines. They were just these weird looking dudes. Uh, um, that was it. Uh, if, if they, if he had cast it like Lynch, then, uh, then Paul Atreides wouldn't have been the white savior of the non-whites, would he? <laughs> he? He, and, and they wouldn't, uh, they wouldn't claim it's a white savior thing because you can only be a white savior if you're a white person yeah. who's going to save all the, all, all the colored people. So they, they kind of set themselves up for this criticism and, and, uh, maybe the next time. Uh, somebody's contemplating this, maybe they'll say, oh no, we should do an all white cast. So we can't uh, have our, our hero be accused of being a white savior. I'd, I'd love that. That'd be an interesting way of backing ourselves back into uh, uh, more Eurocentric uh, filmmaking. Yeah. So I, I want to run through a few more people and thank them. And then I want to uh, talk about David Lean. Uh, so just bear with me, folks. Uh, Okay. Uh, Philip Moose uh, has sent $23. Thank you very much. Cuck Free Zone, 58. That's very generous. S has sent 50. Kevin has sent $100 and says, thanks for your work. Thank you very much, Kevin. Papinian has sent $300. Wow. That is great. We will get in touch with you. Thank you for including your email. Uh, Nils, uh has sent 50 bucks and he says spurred on by the venerable jim goad's appeal for cutter i hereby give my second donation for october next time jim is on the cc podcast i'd be curious to hear his idea on the difference between hillbillies and rednecks if there are any or if it's a distinction without a difference i I will ask him uh nils also sends three dollars and says i'm very happy to hear uh, woes again i was worried that the hanoverian regime had gotten to him because of his long absence uh steve has sent in two hundred dollars gosh this is great thank you so much sesto fior has sent in 60 you guys are worth every penny go jim go greg uh, go countercurrents thank you Krister uh, writes in with $100, thank you, and says, after this Bitcoin bull, Bitcoin bull run, is it possible that we will get our own George Soros at least more donations because of all the new crypto millionaires out there? It seems to me that many of our guys are heavily invested in crypto. I think there's some truth to that. And I, I do hope some of these uh, newly minted crypto millionaires will, will help out the cause. Uh, state of all things since ten U.S. dollars, and and asks why did I leave academia? Well, uh, they just didn't renew my contract, basically, and I didn't want to uh, continue looking for uh, those kinds of jobs, and so I went into uh, full time movement stuff, and I haven't looked back. And I I hope I'm going to make those bastards regret it. I hope I'm going to make them regret not co opting me and. Uh, getting me to spend my life uh, teaching uh, classes and writing articles that might be read by 14 or 15 people. And have, have am having almost no influence on the world. Uh, Redline writes uh, in with 14 US dollars and the message 14. Well, thank you very much. Uh, over at DLive... Um, Annex some an Anaximon, 88 sends one lemon thank you chad of chads one lemon nicks jilvy one ice cream and four lemon slog 14 lemons alaska chaga one ninjigini thank you very much slog one ice cream you have the best mods here we do we have great mods uh thank you gadius and bartleby and uh nick um, anglian has donated one diamond greg have you seen homeland by Juris uh podniks uh, podniks i haven't seen that uh, he also donates a diamond, says John Barry's best film score was The Last Valley. I don't know about that. He did a lot of great film scores. Uh, my sentimental favorite is Born Free, actually. Uh, do you have any thoughts on, on John Barry's music, Morgoth?
1: Yeah, I like him. I like The Out of Africa, and I think there's another one called Out of Time. Sometimes yeah, you some... randomly suggests them, and I'll, I'll think, oh, I haven't listened to that for ages. Well, I, I like John Barry, yeah
0: yeah and I, I love his bond music uh, somewhere out of time is uh, i think is what it's called it's a beautiful score yeah it's a movie with christopher reeve in it i haven't watched the movie but i, I love the music to that so i he's one of my top 10 favorite film composers i, I think he was uh, tremendous yeah.
1: dancers with wolves did he do that one as well yeah 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 it's yeah it's it's uh, that's a wonderful soundtrack yeah.